Good morning. Hey, I'm not feeling too great, so if I seem a little standoffish, it's because I don't want you to have whatever I have. So, uh, but I am excited about the text today. I have less energy than I usually have, so we're probably not going to get done in 10 minutes like we normally do, right? That's how fast I preach, right? Uh, so, good morning and welcome. If this is your first time, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to bring God's word from the letter known as 1 John, which Ruth just read in the series that we have entitled Done. We call it Done because we as a community focus on the gospel. The gospel is the good news of grace found in the person and work of Jesus who made it. So it's not about what we do, but it's about what God's already done. And this letter today, read through the lens of the gospel, the good news, hopefully will stir our affections for him and practically help us obey and apply what he says to, for us to understand and what is for our best to follow and trust God at his word. So we're going to begin the first part of 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, just the first few words. Excuse me. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. John has been teaching and imploring the children of God, perfect song before the sermon, by the way. He has been imploring the children of God, those who are actually a part of the body of Christ, those who have endured, to not be led astray as others had in and outside of the church. A teaching which was leading people astray was that Jesus was not the Christ. And John warred against this false teaching as much as anyone could war against a false teaching for the glory of God. And as he continues, he tells these believers, these people who have said yes to Jesus, these people that have understood the good news to not be led astray, which is pretty important for them, and it's pretty important for us. So Christianity, this idea, like if you've called on the name of the Lord, if you believe in Jesus, you're known as a Christian. And Christian in the original context kind of meant little Christ. It was kind of a derogatory term, like, oh, you like Jesus. <laughs> and, and so Christianity is pretty pol polarizing, but maybe not so much the Christianity of the Bible, but the one that is stereotyped throughout history and especially in our culture today. Christianity is characterized by prosperity preachers attempting to get you to give money in exchange for this fake promise that you then will become healthy, wealthy, and better. Christianity uh, is assumed that God is the ultimate cosmic killjoy attempting to ruin and spoil any worldly fun that does and that God does not want anyone to enjoy anything that's not labeled as Christian. Christianity is stereotyped by legality and the need to follow all the rules, or God is more like uh, Zeus, who will attempt to light us up with a lightning bolt if we don't follow the rules. Heck, there are Christian stereotypes that are generally accepted among Bible-believing followers of Jesus, that as long as you adhere to the rules and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, we one day will spend our eternities in a place with heavenly gates, essentially an old white dude with a beard, and angels playing harps around us as we walk and enjoy all the fruit of our religion in heaven. With all of that silliness, I think I would, I too would say what John is saying to the believers in Ephesus, and I would say to us here in Santa Clara, do not be led astray. 
And being led astray is not just about not believing Jesus is the Christ. Many of us in this room believe that he is, but it's about majoring in things that are not his messiahship. We have emphasized something that makes us good with God that isn't Jesus and his finished work. Perhaps it's something more trivial like church attendance or our assumption that we're not really that bad. But when we lower Jesus's supremacy, his his all-encompassing work on our behalf, we dilute the message of the gospel of grace with flavors of things we must do or how you must behave, and we have just changed the emphasis of the message. We have preached a different message altogether, and that being led astray is actually really subtle and really way more common than I think we normally think. Paul, speaking to the church in Galatia, speaking about not trusting a false gospel, says it this way, I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Redundant, but important. Paul, while writing to the church in Galatia, does not mince words or attempt to make people feel comfortable. A false gospel leads people astray. Believing in a false gospel has no eternal value. A false gospel being generally accepted was and is and might always be the main objective and strategy of the enemy. Because if he can get you to believe in something that isn't Christ, perhaps you'll never see your need for Christ in the first place. There's a short story that was shared many years ago. And it goes like this, the devil and his cohorts were devising a plan to get people to reject the gospel. Let's go to them and say there is no God, proposed one. Silence prevailed. Every demon knew that most people believed in some kind of higher power. Let's tell them there is no hell, no future punishment for sin for the wicked, offered another. That was turned down because most men obviously have consciences which tell them that sin must be punished. The concave was going to end in failure when, they, when there came a voice from the rear. Tell them there is a God. Tell them there is a hell and that the Bible is the word of God. But tell them there's plenty of time to decide the question. Let them neglect the gospel until it's too late. All hell erupted with ghoulish glee, for they knew that if a person procrastinated on Christ, they usually would never receive him. So the moral of the story is that if we get you to believe in a little bit of Jesus, then you'll think you're good. And that, my friends, is a false gospel. Because believing in a little bit of Jesus is not receiving God's forgiveness. That's like putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound through the chest. And Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, he is our righteousness. He is who makes us right with God. Not a, not a more palatable version of Jesus that looks and acts more like us than what the Bible portrays about him. My favorite Voltaire quote, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. Jesus calls us to follow him, 
Not we say yes to Jesus and then tell him to follow us. Being led astray can be subtle and be a distraction from the gospel personified in Jesus Christ. So John says, don't be led astray. And then he says, the second part of verse 7, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Okay. I guess the question that comes to mind when I read this specific part of the verse is how could one maybe misinterpret what John's implying? The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. And here lies one of the main things that lead people astray. This is one of the things that lead people astray, even the people that worship in Christian churches all of the time, doing what, are, what is right, or how we interpret this, doing good deeds, then becomes how we know we are good with God. Well, I'm not that bad, and I did this. So obviously, I'm good with God. But as we have been saying, pretty much every week in the series, and if we're really honest, every week, the entire time, at least I know that I've been here, is that what makes us right with God? What is it that makes any of us right with God? You can talk back to the preacher. Jesus, that is right. And it is only belief in Jesus. That is what our righteousness is based on. Only believing that Jesus is our righteousness is what makes us righteous. That's a takeaway right there, I hope, for somebody. The only thing... The only, only believing that Jesus is our righteousness is what makes us righteous. He is our righteousness, and believing that he is is what can make you and I righteous. So when John says, he who does what is right, I don't take that to mean good deeds, but instead a motivation to love God and to obey God at his word because we understand and we know and we're affectionate towards him because he first loved us and he gave us his righteousness. And so out of that reality and belief, we then do what is right. So our righteous acts, not the point, but belief in the righteous one who makes us righteous is and will always be the point. Has the horse been kicked enough? Because this is something I want us to grasp. We are not righteous because we do good things. We are righteous because Christ was righteous for us. Because even when you or I do something that may be seen as righteous, oh, that was good, you're righteous, that was great, or act, if we act good, it is not on our own if we are in Christ, but it is reflecting and abiding in the righteous one. So he gets the credit. He is who is thought of. He is where we point the glory because our lives in Christ are not our own, but now, as Paul puts it, we are hidden in Christ. Here's what it says in Colossians 3. For you died, Christians, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So for those of us who still have far too much pride in our own abilities and actions, and I just want to be real, I'm one of them, let me give you this litmus test. Christian, if you identify with Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and through the resurrection of the dead, you did nothing to earn your salvation. You were dependent upon God to intervene and make a way for you to be his. So it's all him. It's not you. Are you with me so far? We good? Okay, I'm going to keep going. That is the crux of the gospel 
That is a value at COV that we emphasize and we redundantly communicate throughout all of Scripture. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Okay, so we got that part. So when you do anything, Christian, that resembles obedience, when you do anything that shows off God's glory and shows off God's grace, who deserves the credit? Jesus. And if you say you, you probably don't understand what God has done for you and continues to do for you. And your adoption, your being born again, your being made a new creation, all God, not you. And this new person who is made alive in Christ, who is hidden with Christ, who is given Christ's perfect record and Christ's spirit, you, my friend, are no longer yours. You are God's possession. And it is no longer about what you do or how righteous you may look or act, but it's about, get ready, whose you are. And believing this, understanding this, living based on this changes how we live. Like, just, uh, I don't know, think through the fact that it's not about what you do, it's about Christ. And when you start to think that way, it changes the way you behave. It changes our need for affirmation. Because we understand that all the affirmation we would ever need or want is found in Christ. So let's read that verse again as we lean into the point what John is trying to make in the very next verse. He says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. (laughs) Waterboy references all throughout my head. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So here we are, reading the Bible in English, making some assumptions based on how we read this, and I would assume after all the emphasis on not what we do, but whose we are, we may still read this as contrast between being good and being bad, or doing good deeds rather than sinning. And here lies the problem. If you take nothing else away, hear this. Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. Jesus came to give you his righteousness. Jesus didn't come to make you a better person. He came to forgive you of your sins and give you his righteousness. And the more we point to our own goodness or attempt to mask Jesus' sacrifice with our own actions, we are not only missing the point of Jesus' sacrifice, but we might inadvertently be leading other people astray. I am never more cognizant of this idea of me talking about how good I am or the things that I have done than when I spend time with friends or family who I guess what you'd call are nominal Christians. Now, I don't know about how you define this term. I don't define a nominal Christian as someone who just comes to church on Christmas and Easter. We call them priesters. all right? That's what they're called. But instead, this may be the people that attend church regularly and serve often. But instead of realizing and crying over and being so excited about the fact that God loves them in spite of them, or pointing to Jesus when they're affirmed for their actions, or speaking about the extravagant love of God through the gospel of grace, instead they speak more about their own actions, and they talk more about their church friends than they talk about the reality that the gospel is what makes them right with God. Now, I'm not thinking about anyone in this church at all. I'm being, like, truthful. There is not one person when I wrote that, I was going, oh, it's this. 
literally no one in this church that I know yet. But this tends to be what I experience from people throughout Christianity. But if you resonate with what I just described, maybe you kind of point to your own actions. Maybe you talk more about your friends in the church than you talk about the reality that Christ died for you. Stop it. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And any attempt or any credit we attempt to take for our salvation, even in our righteousness, is taking away from the one who deserves all of our praise and all of the glory. I'll give myself an amen. Amen, Tim. Well, well said. Okay. So when John says the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, this has more to do with whose you are and not only what you do. You may say, I am not of the devil, pastor. And I hope that is true, especially considering we all sin all the time, believer or non-believer. But as it is written, we all come from being ruled by what Paul calls the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Ephesians 2. As for you, Paul says to those in Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were all this, church. We all lived like this. Doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. Doesn't matter if you were born on a pew. We were all this at one time. We were all under this. And the only cure for this disease is to not morally modify how we behave, but instead be transformed by a new birth, by being born again. So while we're all like this at one point, Christ comes and he changes our status. I was going to use like a Facebook reference, but I don't even know if anyone has Facebook anymore. So I'm not going to. So our status was changed. Our nature has been changed. And now we understand that we don't have to sin like we once did. Sin no longer. Here's the point. If we're not a child of the devil, if we're a child of God, sin no longer empowers us. Grace in Christ empowers us. And the devil, who once was the dominating leader in everyone's lives, has been replaced and overpowered through faith in the grace of God's work in Jesus. And as John says, the devil has been sinning since the beginning, which points out Satan's first cameo in the biblical story as a serpent in Genesis chapter 3. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. I'm not exactly sure God said that, but okay. Or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And since the devil lied to Eve in the beginning, he has been known as the father of lies, elf reference right there, who wants to be the one who misleads you, 
But not only that, look at how Peter puts what the enemy does. He says in 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're not alone. You're not alone, church. And so what is Peter's solution to the devil's predatory nature? Resist him and stand firm in the faith. So I'm going to put this back and I'm going to stand. So how is it at all possible that we can resist the devil and stand firm? Let's continue in 1 John in the second part of 1 John 3.8. Here's what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So you have the devil who wants to mislead and wants to devour and who came to destroy the enemy's work. That's right. And now you have the king of kings, the alpha and omega, and he came. And as we say often, we're with him. Talk about the perfect side to be on. You know what I'm saying? We aren't hoping Jesus defeats Satan. It ain't a fair fight. The real question is, are you with Jesus or not? Because being with Jesus, being in Jesus, means the devil, he does not have dominion over your life anymore. And you don't have to yell, the power of Christ compels you. You don't have to do that. It's not a mythical thing. It's a faith thing. And the one who has faith in Christ knows that Christ wins every time. We said the other week that belief in Jesus will always be more important than your good deeds. But let me take it a step further. Your faith in Jesus will always be what protects you from Satan's schemes and temptations. Not that you can just chant, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus every time a temptation comes, but because of your faith, your status of sonship, of daughtership is secure. And it is by faith that we believe and own that truth. So then, knowing that our secured relationship with God is dominant in our lives through faith, we then do not have to continue to sin because our relationship with Christ supersedes our own desires and urges. And it is that superseding relationship that we find freedom. Not that sins don't ever take place. Let's just be real. They do but that those sins do not have to define us anymore. So with that in mind, let's look at a very misunderstood verse that can help us grasp what John is implying rather than our religious and possibly legalistic interpretation. Here's what 9 says. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Uh, I guess I'm out. Because God's seeds remains in them. Okay, well, if I'm continuing to sin, a legalistic point of view is probably, well, then I guess his seed does not remain in me. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. Oh, man, this seems impossible. I cannot do that. Oh, wait, it's not about what I do. It's about whose I, who's I am. So let me once again say it's not about what you do, it's about whose you are, and the child of God is a child of God. Get it? Okay. And in that relationship, our status, our security, our sonship is what makes all the difference. 
Church, if you have believed unto the Lord Jesus Christ, if you believe you are made righteous, not because of your good deeds, but because Jesus is righteous on your behalf, if you believe that Jesus lived the life you could not lead, died the death you deserve to die, and then physically and victoriously rose from the dead, defeating death, then you, my friends, are not just my friends. You're my brothers and sisters in the faith. Because our status as children of God is completely based on God's gift of grace and gift of faith to believe that Jesus is enough. Woo! Sorry. So if that's you, if you believe this, it's kind of simple. Do you believe that? If that's you, you can have full confidence that your relationship with God means that you will never, ever, ever have to wonder if God loves you. Because when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' finished work. He sees his completed work on your behalf. And his seed, his mark, his salvation, his finished work, his spirit, his goodness, his righteousness, his justification, all of it are gifted to us. You can't outgive God, and that's not has nothing to do with giving a tithe. You can't outgive God because he's given you everything in Jesus Christ. So when he says that those who are children of God cannot go on sinning, do not look at that as an itemized checklist of do's and don'ts. Look at that as sin no longer is your status. The enemy is no longer your king. Sin no longer defines us because we're with Jesus. Now, I know this is a really difficult way it's hard for us to wrap our minds around what John is saying here because you don't continue to be defined or identified by your sin because in Christ you don't. And our identity being placed in anything but Jesus is what our sin really is. And we in Christ don't do that anymore. When we are grafted into Jesus, grafted into Christ, and born again into the family of God, and that makes me want to worship in prayer, in praise, in singing. Because my identity is no longer something I have to find in finite things. It is finally placed in something that can bear the weight of my existence. And I am a child of God, y'all. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. That, that's where my mind went, okay? All right. No, I'm a child of God. That was Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And with that in mind, not Mary Poppins, Jesus, with that in mind, look at the verse that we're going to conclude with today, and I didn't go four hours. Praise the Lord. Verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Hey, don't read this legalistically. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. I'm going to take a breath, for emphasis mostly, because I want you to hear what I'm about to say. My entire ministry, the entire time I've followed Jesus and been telling other people about Jesus, I've been attempting to crack the code of grace. It doesn't make sense. It's absurd. 
I have been attempting to logically understand it, and I have been trying with all of my brain power to figure out how to communicate God's extravagant, not reckless, extravagant love, which is found completely in Christ. And it is so powerful, so life-changing, not in by what we do, but through the motivation in which we do what we do. It's almost like when the apostles speak about our actions. When John speaks about our actions, they are speaking about the sum result of what being included in Christ actually does, rather than attempting to get us to try really hard to do these things like an imposter. But rather, because we are in Christ, we then do these things through the Spirit of God doing the work in us. But how do you know? If you're doing what you're doing is to justify yourself or because God has already justified you in doing this work through you, it really depends on whose you are. John is contrasting those who are still children of the devil and children of God. So let me ask you this, okay? I want you to just real quick, I want you to think of someone in your life that you love, okay? You don't have to point at them, you don't just, whatever. Just someone in your life that you love. When you serve them, when you do something for them, do you do it to earn more of their love? Or do you do it just simply because you love them? When you obey God at his word, do you want to earn more of his love? Or do you love him? It's a simple question. Huge ramifications, depending on how you answer this. And look at how Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven and for those who are used by God rather than attempting to earn their salvation. I've read this parable before. It blew my mind this week. Matthew 25, 31 through 33, speaking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer. <laughs> Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? I love the righteous's question. When? When did I do this? When did we do this? That question implies that they were not attempting to do this to earn God's love. They were doing it because God through them were doing these things. And if you have been reminded of your status your adoption, your identity, being secured and found in Christ. The king's response reads a lot differently than from a basic religious interpretation. Verse 40, the king will reply, I tell, truly I tell you, 
whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. When we love God's people, when we love other sons and daughters of God, we don't earn more of God's love. We don't gain more notoriety, or at least we shouldn't. We don't get to an extra level of heaven like we beat Donkey Kong. We simply love God, and one of the ways that is evidenced is by loving His children. So do what is right is not a, I did my good deed for the day. Rather, it is obedience and trusting God at His word and by loving and serving those in the kingdom of God for the glory of God. There's no expectation of payback. There's no expectation of uh, reciprocating help. This is what the Spirit of God does in those who have trusted Christ. And when He does, we do not earn more of God's love by being a vessel of grace. We simply look more like big brother Jesus. And as we do, what He would do and does do through us, and we have this, here's the child of God. Here's the child of the devil. What's the difference? Simply the motivation to why we do what we do. And honestly, doing what we do because Christ first loved us is a manifestation of our adoption into the kingdom of God. So another misunderstanding or misinterpretation of how we read the end of this verse. Verse 10, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So again, doing what is right is not your good deed for the day, nor is it perfect living, but really it's a continuation of what we have been talking about each week to some extent. It is abiding, and abiding is not trying really hard. It is relying and depending on the Christ who makes us right. So we do what is right by looking to the righteous one. We do what is right by finding our confidence in our adoption in Christ. And we do what is right by being compelled by love for God rather than attempting to earn what is freely given. And when we grasp the beauty of his grace offered in the person and work of Jesus, we can read passages like we just did and see what perhaps Christ seemed like maybe at first a bunch of do's and don'ts, and we can focus on what has been done so we in motivation of love can serve and obey God for the right reasons. Worship team, come on up, please. And we're going to respond in worship, musical worship. We're going to respond in singing. We're going to respond in having a moment to either hear these lyrics or sing these lyrics, remembering that our status is secure if we have trusted Jesus. And guess what? If you have, you're going to start to be transformed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you so much that it's true. And I thank you, God, that while I still probably am nowhere near fully grasping what a big deal it is that I'm called a son of God, that, Lord, I don't have to sit here and wonder if you love me. I don't have to sit here and wonder if something I did yesterday uh, excluded me from your love. I can rest confident because it's not about me. It's about Jesus, and I don't need to add to my salvation because Jesus you did for me what I could not do for myself. So Lord, as we sing to you, I pray that it would 
I don't know how this works, but I, I pray it would bring a smile to your face out of motivation of loving the God who first loved us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.